Every work team has moments of conflict and dysfunction. Sometimes productive conflict is a necessary part of wrestling through big ideas to get to the best possible outcome. But sometimes our teams become mired in conflict that is entirely avoidable because it's based in vastly different communication styles or different motivations and misunderstandings. Enter the Enneagram. The Enneagram offers not only self-awareness, but also curiosity and deeper understanding of others. I teach the Enneagram and consult with teams to improve their communication styles, conflict effectiveness, and self-leadership, all of which foster highly engaged and high-performing teams. During a recent team event, I heard over and over, this just makes so much sense when they looked around the room and saw who was fitting within each type. And now I know why this person asked so many questions or this depersonalizes some of the conflict we've been having because I can tell we're just coming from different perspectives. So now that we know where we are, we can see how we can get aligned. So if you're looking for ongoing support or simply considering an engaging introspective module for your team's offsite or event, let's talk. Reach out to the Nine Types team at hello at ninetypes.co or schedule a one-on-one consultation with me on my website, ninetypes.co. And now on to the show. Welcome to Ask an Enneagram Coach. I'm your host, Steph Baron Hall. I'm a certified Enneagram coach, creator of Nine Types Co. on Instagram, and author of the new book, The Enneagram in Love. Every other week, you can find me here answering all of your pressing Enneagram questions so that you can understand yourself more clearly and find new paths toward growth. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Ask an Enneagram Coach. I'm really excited to be with you today because today it's just me, and we are going to talk through some of the really interesting questions I received recently on Instagram. So if you follow me on Instagram or or you're on Instagram at all, you may have seen the really popular true and false question prompt going around. So basically the idea is somebody makes a statement and then the person responding says it's either true or false. And so this was really fun to do with the Enneagram because I find that so often we have all of these stereotypes about the Enneagram types, and we'll get into them in a lot more detail. But one of my favorite things to do with the Enneagram is to kind of bust those myths, right? We want to talk about what is actually underneath the outer behavior that we often just kind of assume is connected to Enneagram type. Um, But sometimes those are stereotypes. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, I also have some more interesting questions that um, I just found really fascinating and thought um, that you might as well. So we'll get into that as well today. This will be a little different from a typical podcast episode in that that it will be more of a lightning round approach. So rather than um, kind of doing a long explanation, I'm going to read the statements and then say if they are true or false. So the first statement that I got a lot actually is, are there best and worst types? And this is something that I think is really, really important. So there is no such thing as a best type or a worst type. All of the types are equally good. And at the same time, all all of the types can be equally bad, right? So there isn't any hierarchy between which type that you like. So what I've found is that a lot of sevens 
and many eights as well, think that their type is the best. The same can go for fours and threes, though I wouldn't say that it's as strong as with sevens. So I have found that most of the time, sevens are like, yeah, why wouldn't anyone want to be a seven? I love being a seven. So that's just something to note. The reason that this comes up is because a lot of us, when we first learn our type, don't like it. So I'll just share a little bit of my experience with finding my Enneagram type and kind of how that felt and what it looked like. So I was actually first introduced to the Enneagram by my husband, and he told me, hey, you might want to look at this. He kind of had a printout from the Enneagram Institute website of his type, and he you know, suggested that I take a look. So I did, and I was like, ah. And at the time, I was using a different personality framework called Total SDI. Um, and now I think the naming has changed, but it's called Strengths Development In- Inventory. And it's also motivation-based. So I was really connecting with the concept that the motivation is more important than the behavior. Um, But at the time, I was just not that into the Enneagram. I I didn't want to add another layer. Um, But a few months later, of course, my sister also suggested I look into the Enneagram. And so I did. And when I first took the test, um, again, I didn't know anything about the Enneagram at the time. So I just Googled a random test, took something free online. It said I was the achiever. So I automatically, of course, was like, yes, I won. I'm the achiever. So thrilled and filled with pride and everything, right? So I started doing more reading and was really interested in it. And shortly thereafter, well, maybe nearly a year later, uh, the Road Back to You book came out. So I automatically ordered it. I was so excited to read it, started reading about my type, started reading about some of the pitfalls of being a type three, like the shape shifting, um, different things like that. And I was like, man, I don't like this. And part of that is because the shape shifting aspect was something that I had begun to notice in myself. I had begun to observe myself that, you know, I was doing this chameleon behavior and I was really discouraged to to see that on paper of like, that is part of my Enneagram type. And I just remember sitting at the time I was living um, in a small apartment and we had a balcony and I just remember sitting on my balcony and just thinking, oh, I wish I could change my type. Like I just really hated it. <laughs> um, and so it took a lot of self-compassion and self-acceptance and work over the years to not feel that way. So, and I think, I don't think that this experience is uncommon. I think a lot of people feel this way when they first learn the Enneagram. And that's really because it does shine a light on the the darker things. Um, so with the Enneagram, we often talk about shadows. And by shadows, I really mean parts of ourself that we don't see or are that are hidden. But I think also sometimes our ego doesn't allow us to see these things. They're more like blind spots where it's like your ego doesn't even allow you to see it because it's so kind of repulsive in a sense to you. Um, it's so dark. It's so uh, negative. Um, it's so ugly, um, especially to you. I don't, sometimes I think the shadows that we see in ourselves, um, often we think that our shadows are worse than other people's shadows. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the case. But anyway, so this whole concept of um, illuminating the shadows is I think what turns people off from the Enneagram or what 
and I've been accused of this as well, but what causes people to find it to be overly negative? I don't think it's overly negative. I think it's probably a little bit more realistic than a lot of the tools that point at our strengths in the present moment. And don't get me wrong, we need to be able to see those things, right? Um, But I also think that for real growth, we have to be able to confront and illuminate some of the darker aspects of the self. So I think a lot of folks have this this feeling. And so a lot of the time, what'll end up happening is um, two different things. One, you read your type, you hate everything about your type. You think that um, your type is the worst type. Okay, I hear this all the time. And one thing I would just wanna encourage you if you feel this way is that just because something is easy for you doesn't mean it's easy for other people. So when we feel like we're the worst type, I think a lot of the time what's going on is we think that everything else is equal for everyone else and we just have the worst, um, like the worst shadows or the worst weaknesses or the worst darkness. But actually, if you weren't your type, you wouldn't have all of the strengths and all of the positive aspects of you as well. So it's not like you can just chop them all up and get only the positive strengths of every type. That's just not how it works. Um, you, it's, it's, a, it's a full package. And sometimes our strengths and overdrive are our weaknesses. And sometimes the things that make us who we are are actually the things that are our greatest strengths and like greatest points of authenticity. So I feel the need to say that because, um, for example, you know, if you're four and you think that your weaknesses are the worst or, or the, the, that your type is the worst, um, I think what you're missing is all the goodness of your type and like the way that you can see the world in such a different way that helps other people see beauty and meaning and significance and just brings like that genuine authenticity that a lot of people either don't have the courage to express or don't have the ability to like really put their finger on what it feels like. Fours just naturally have this way of being that is so authentic and true to themselves and it's really inspiring. And so I think that when you are comparing yourself to somebody else and saying that your type is the worst, you are ignoring all of those positive aspects of the self. I kind of see the same thing for ones too, where ones think one is the worst type. Like, you know, we, I'm way too critical or I have this inner critic or um, I wish I wasn't such a black and white thinker or all these other things. But also just remembering like the the conviction and the, the sense of belief that ones carry um, and the way that they're able to kind of apply themselves wherever they need to, all of those things are really, really impactful. And so I think we have to remember that, like the, the, you can't just chop it up into <laughs> different parts. Um, and so kind of seeing yourself as the whole person, um, can kind of help with feeling, um, like you're the worst because you're not, um, and there is no worst type. So practicing self-compassion in those moments um, can be really, really helpful to kind of integrating and allowing yourself to actually grow. Because if you just think you're the worst all the time, it's you're not going to have really the, the energy or the inspiration to move forward. But being able to see yourself as a whole person with all of these fantastic qualities and some not so great qualities is going to be really helpful for you. 
The other thing that I think happens a lot with this is that people experience a few people of a specific type as extremely hurtful or toxic, and they end up saying that type sucks. So I actually had a conversation with somebody this week who seemed to feel that way. Um, they were saying a specific type was the worst um, based on the people they know of that type. And that's just it's just not fair um, to assume that every person of that type to, to kind of lump everyone into one category. It just, you can't do that. Like it just, uh, it's not possible. You don't know every single person of that type. It is possible that for you, not for everyone of your type, but for you, some of the traits of that, that type often, um, expresses can be challenging for you and might rub you the wrong way. Um, And I think we have problems with other types um, for a couple of different reasons. One, sometimes those other types highlight something about ourselves that we don't like and we're trying to reject. Or sometimes those other types confront us in a way that makes us feel unsteady or insecure. Um, Like, for example, maybe you experience somebody else having all of the qualities that you really wish you had, but you don't. And so it highlights an insecurity. So I would say that if that's the case, get curious about if if you really think that another type is the worst type, get curious about why, what, what is it about that type that rubs you the wrong way? Um, I, I would love to give examples here. And also I'm, I'm cognizant that sometimes (laughs) When I give examples, um, people get their feelings hurt a little bit because either because I didn't choose their type for the example or because um, it feels like I'm saying that their type is the worst, um, which isn't the intention. But um, let's talk a little bit about a couple of of examples of this. So one example could be type threes, Um, type threes feeling like type nine is the worst right? Because not only do threes go or or take on some characteristics of type nine when they're stressed, but also type nines in a sense are everything that type threes aren't. Um, Contentment with stillness, um, the ability to just be and not to do. Um, Even sometimes I think, so those are some positive characteristics. I also think that, um, in a sense, type threes get frustrated with nine's lack of action and productivity. Um, And I think that when we observe this, we're able to actually kind of understand ourselves a little bit better and understand like maybe there's something to learn from that. Maybe I actually want that level of contentment and stillness. So how do I cultivate it? Um, so kind of challenging those narratives instead of being like, there's something wrong with this other person, questioning what it is in yourself that is causing you to be driven toward that assumption. Another example of this could be um, type seven and type one. So this is a little bit of the opposite, but maybe sometimes type sevens have a really hard time with ones who are so black and white. Sevens are very open-minded typically, and they can almost be... Um, extremely stubborn about being open-minded and seeing the world that way. Whereas type ones tend to see things as very black and white. And so they can kind of butt heads about that. Um, And so 
for sevens, maybe what they're coming up against is they don't want any limitations put on them. And so they take personal offense when somebody else has limitations in their mind, right? Um, and then the opposite could be true, right? Where where ones think, why are you having fun? You haven't worked hard yet. How dare you feel that you can have fun when all of these things aren't done? Um, like you haven't worked hard enough to be able to relax. And then maybe it's it can trigger for the one, oh, like maybe I want permission to relax when I haven't worked hard yet. Hmm. Um, so again, that's just an example, but that's kind of how you can try to understand this in a little bit of a different way so that when you kind of have that like little voice in your head that says this type is the worst, or you can reframe it. You can understand a little bit more of what's behind it so that you can approach it a little bit differently. Because at the end of the day, the Enneagram is about cultivating compassion not only for yourself, but also for others. Understanding not only your own shadows and blind spots and weaknesses, but understanding others so that you can kind of understand what other people are up against. I think we assume that our problems are always the worst problems sometimes. Um, But rather than competing with other people and comparing our problems, we can just kind of create some awareness around the struggles that other people are facing as well. Because the things that are easy for you are probably difficult for somebody else. And the things that are difficult for you might be easy for someone else. And so I just think taking that mindset of of, um, competition away and comparison can be really helpful toward creating more empathy. Our next statement is, some type combos can be extremely toxic to each other in relationships. And I would say false. I don't think that there are any type combinations that are better or worse necessarily. I think it's really all about kind of what I was just talking about, um, awareness. And if you are on the path toward growth, if you are working on personal development, those things are going to be way more impactful for you in your relationships than Enneagram type. So I think it's more important to look for somebody who's also on that same healing path that you are. Um, or if you're already in a relationship, you're not with the wrong type, just, um, find ways to work toward, you know, healing together. Okay. I'm going to run through a statement from each type and talk about if it's true or false. Let's start with type one statement is, Ones are more fun than Instagram portrays, not all list making and cleaning. I would say true. Ones can be a lot of fun. Um, Ones can be very like off the wall and passionate and um, not as uptight, I think, as a lot of people portray them to be. I think it's really difficult to convey all of the different aspects of one individual type. Um, when you're like making a list on Instagram or you're writing about behaviors on Instagram, it's just impossible. And yes, a lot of ones love to make lists and they might like to clean or they at least like to have a clean house. I mean, I think most of us do, right? But at the end of the day, it's not that's not what the Enneagram is about. And a lot of ones are really fun. I know a lot of of ones in my life that are really fun, um, like to have a good time. Or I also know ones who aren't very clean and tidy all the time. Um, 
Because again, that's that's not necessarily what we're talking about when we look at the Enneagram types. So yes, ones can definitely be a lot more fun, a lot more out there, a lot more passionate. Um, and it, that kind of goes back to what is important to them. Different ones have different values and that's lived out differently. And so, yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind, especially because there's this concept of ones being the perfectionists. And I mean, you guys know that I don't love to use those monikers in general, but if we were to use one of the monikers, I would prefer the one, the improver or the reformer, um, because I think that's really the focus for one. So it's not really about perfection. Some ones are perfectionists, but not all ones are perfectionists and not all perfectionists are ones either. So um, perfectionism can show up in any Enneagram type. And it's really more about the core motivation, (laughs) which I always go back to. But yes, ones can be messy, especially if it's not um, the thing that you're looking at is not their specific sphere where they are trying to improve. Um, So for example, somebody who is really passionate about the environment might not be super opinionated about if their bed is made because that's not their focus, right? Um, And so I think there's like this misconception that, you know, ones always have a super tidy desk and their bed is made and all these different things. And um, I would say, let's leave that behind a little bit. Okay, type two. For type two, um, it's that men can be twos. And my answer to this is true. Men can be twos. I think this is one of the really unfortunate things that happens when we start really attaching or over-attaching to the traits. I think there are also just traits that we view as stereotypically masculine and stereotypically feminine. And I say stereotypically because I think we should move away from that. I don't think that it's very helpful to assign certain genders, certain traits, and other genders, other traits. I just don't think that's very helpful, um, especially when you're talking about um, a, a binary. Um, I also don't think that's very helpful. I think that that gender is a lot more than that. And so, um, yeah, I think just letting go of, of those stereotypes can be helpful. Um, especially because this causes a lot of problems for, for types like for example, types two and four um, as men um, or types three and eight as women, they can run into a lot of issues because people um, kind of perceive them in a way that is counter to their societal expectations and that causes friction. And so it would just be better if we change the way that we view um, these types of traits so that We're not so attached to the stereotypes that we actually miss the humanity of the actual person, the actual human being that's right in front of us. So I think that's actually way more important. Any gender, any type is possible. And I know that most of you know this, like I I know that we know this, but I think um, a lot of the time I, I forget that people don't, I guess, because I did get a ton of questions this week about this particular thing. People, people saying like all women are twos or um, all moms are twos or all or no men are twos. And that's just not the case. So really important to keep in mind. Okay, next statement. 
threes are more likely to be secretive and cause scandals because of not being truthful. And when I read this one, I literally laughed because no, this is false. I don't think that threes are more likely to be or to be the cause of scandals. Um, One of the big misconceptions about threes, I think, is that they are liars. Um, I do think that sometimes very unhealthy threes might embellish the truth to make themselves look better. But I also think a lot of types do that. A lot of people do that. I don't think that's necessarily a type three only trait. But where I think this comes from is the the vice or the passion of type three is self-deceit. And sometimes that's shortened to deceit. So basically saying that threes are deceitful, but actually self-deceit is something different. So self-deceit is believing, and this is the tendency of type three, self-deceit is the belief that I am the image that I project to other people. So instead of having my own identity, whatever that is, um, my identity is actually like the self-deceit is um, deceiving myself to believe that the identity that I project for others and that I've crafted for others is who I really am. So this obviously causes big problems, right? So that that is a cause of, of trouble for threes because it can cause them to not know themselves very well. It can cause them to struggle with their identity. It can cause them to even struggle to understand if they are a three or not. It can also cause them to struggle with understanding their feelings and being able to name their emotions. That doesn't mean that they are deceitful. Like it doesn't mean that they're liars. Um, I think a pattern of consistently lying to other people is very bad and very dangerous. We don't want that, right? Um, But I would caution against connecting it specifically to Enneagram type threes, because I don't think that that is what that means. So I, but I I did love being able to answer this question because um, it is kind of funny, right? It is kind of like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of silly. So yeah. All right. Next, next statement. So this statement says, um, Fours are the most self-centered. And again, I would say false. I would say that fours, a better way to think of it as is as um, self-absorbed, but that's not exactly what um, it means. So what I'm really talking about is I think why fours seem to be self-centered is because they get caught in their heads. They are they kind of tend to live in their feelings. They tend to live in their heads. So that's kind of like the center of their universe in a sense, because they really are so introspective and and really searching for their true identity. Yes, but also just searching for, for meaning, for understanding, they're processing things, they're imagining things, they're, they're dreaming, they're envisioning, they're thinking. I mean, it's just like this, this whole like bundle of processing that's happening inside of a forest for his head at all times. Like, I think that that is something that we forget sometimes because we think of fives as the thinking types, but fours can also be very much that way. And so I wouldn't say that fours are self-centered. I would say that they live in their own heads to the point that it seems like they're detached from the world. And when fours are very unhealthy, they have a tendency. And again, this is 
one of those negative things that happens to all of us when we are very unhealthy, but um, for fours in particular, um, when fours are very unhealthy, they have a tendency to believe that they are the only one who has ever suffered. They're the only one who's suffering and they want everyone else to feel it too. So they'll, they'll have like the victim mentality, like the woe is me type of thing going on. And they will try to make others feel as miserable as they do. So when that happens, yes, they're trying to make themselves the center of something um, because I think they are trying to meet a need, right? I think they're trying to meet meet the need of feeling seen and feeling mirrored and somebody else holding space for their emotional world. Um, but how that comes off can be very off-putting for other people around them. And so it almost like they what they really need is for people to come and to mirror them. Um, but what that what actually happens a lot of the time is that they just end up feeling more distanced from others. And so uh, it's really hard. I think it's it's really hard. But again, the, what I've just been saying is when fours are very, very unhealthy. Otherwise, I think that the perception that fours are self-centered comes from fours living in their minds, living in their hearts, not so much um, from the, an actual stance of being self-centered. I think that's a bit of an unfair um, assumption. Okay, so let's move on to type fives. Statement is fives can actually be pretty open, but usually only to a few incredibly close people. And I would say this is absolutely true. Um, I think this is a common misconception about fives. I think people think of fives as kind of stoic and cold and a little bit, um, I don't know, like empty almost, um, like lacking warmth, but I think that those are just common misconceptions. I think that typically those people don't know a five very well. People who know fives well typically know them to be generous, kind, warm, funny, but typically under their breath type of funny, like they uh, make little sarcastic side comments. Um, And they're just incredibly knowledgeable and giving of that knowledge. Um, Most of the fives I know are very happy to like share their thoughts and share their time um, with people that they care about. And so I think it's pretty common for fives to not really share that stuff with other people, um, with people outside their circle. I have heard it said that fives typically have less than five people who are close enough that they let them see that side of themselves. Um, And I think that's probably true. I think that if you're close with a five's significant other, even you might get to see more of, of the warmer side of them. Um, because I mean, like anyone, we like people who like our people, right? So I think that there's a warmth from fives when somebody is caring and kind toward their significant other. And so that's just something I've experienced. But yeah, I find fives to be very, very kind and very warm. It just, you know, they're selective. And I think that that's not a bad thing. I think it's probably a pretty good thing and something that's required for them to maintain their energy. So yeah, let's say that's true about fives. Moving on to sixes. Okay, I actually love this question because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, in coaching and typing sessions. So sixes are downers and constantly 
make situations worse. And I would say that's false. I think this is a really um, unfair and unhelpful characterization of sixes. So a lot of the time sixes get this reputation because they have a tendency to question things. They have a tendency to be able to use their analytical mind and their troubleshooting skills to say, okay, I see what you're saying, but like, let's think about this differently. And a lot of the time what happens is other types aren't as willing to think through all of the eventualities of a situation. Um, Sometimes sixes actually do need a little help to see that things might work out okay. Um, But more often, I think it's really that people, you know, they pitch a project. They're like, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do it this way and we're going to do it in this time frame. And then the six comes along and says, okay, well, for you to get that done in this time frame, these are the things that you need to do in order to get there, right? Or we need to do even in order to get there. So it's kind of like a, like the ability to kind of lay out the scheduling. They're really perceptive about that. So they're able to say, okay, these are all the things that we need to do, right? And then what happens? The, the type that pitched the project in the first place is like, well, you're just being negative. You're just not seeing it my way. When really the six is just trying to bring perspective. Like, okay, we don't want this to sneak up on us. So let's think about how to realistically do this. And so I think that's really where this comes from is not the sixes are doing anything um, to be negative. It, they're just looking at their realistic expectations. I think sixes have a tendency to... Um, want to temper expectations of others so that others aren't disappointed because, um, or the project doesn't fail or whatever, because they're very focused on like, how can we comfortably and feasibly accomplish something in the time frame expected? So yes, some people perceive that as being pessimistic or a Debbie Down or something like that, but I really think that that's not the intention, nor is it really a fair assessment of what is actually happening for the six. Um, Because if you try to pitch something huge and big and massive and amazing and you put your plan into action and you don't have anyone with that type of six energy on your team, it's more likely that you're going to run into hiccups that you didn't expect. Sixes are really, really good at understanding what hiccups are going to come and planning ahead for them. So Call that Debbie Downer, if you will, or call it a very effective team member, which is what I prefer. All right. Type seven. This one also made me laugh a little bit um, because I think this is very, very common. So this statement is all sevens are lavish, big spenders. And I'm going to say false. I don't think all sevens are lavish, big spenders. I think that, I mean, even in the past, I've, I've alluded to Parks and Rec, the TV show, and how sevens are very much that treat yourself mood. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they always are in that mode, right? So I find that a lot of sevens are able to connect the concept of like their goals. So maybe one of their goals is travel, or maybe one of their goals is a once a year treat yourself day, and their day-to-day habits. So because they're in the head triad, they're thinking through those things first. So I think it's common for sevens to have an ability to think, okay, I'm not going to do that because of this and be able to delay that gratification a little bit. 
So I wouldn't say that's out of the realm of possibility. Also, another thing for sevens is they have a deep-seated fear that they will not have enough. And that, that satisfaction and that contentment is very, very important to them. And so I've seen a lot of sevens who save for retirement so fastidiously that they literally are living on nothing now. Like they're always getting the cheapest thing. They're always pinching pennies because they want their, in their mind, they're kind of living in the future and they want to have an abundance then. So for the time being, they just dial it back. And again, like this can be good. This can be helpful for them in that future. But also I just think one of the real challenges for sevens is living in the moment. Like what does joy and happiness and presence and abundance look like for you in this very moment Um, and kind of balancing the future self with the present self. Um, I think it's really important. So sevens can be big lavish spenders because they're always treating themselves and sevens can be very, very dedicated savers um, because they're building up that nest egg for the future. So yeah, I would say false on that one. Now, moving on to type eight. Eights may appear intense and scary, but that's often their passion shining through. I'd say true. So we touched on the passion of type three earlier, but the passion of type eight is lust. And this isn't a lust like sexual lust. It's a lust for life. It's a lust for intensity. It's a lust for getting the most out of every second. Um, It's a little similar to type seven, but um, how how it looks is pretty different. Um, And eights are always kind of looking for more. They kind of have this thought process that like anything worth doing is worth overdoing and kind of a passion for excess. And so that comes across in the way that they communicate sometimes because a lot of the other types really pull back their communication style and kind of, and, and don't just like let them, the, the, uh, the full self kind of come through and the full authenticity, but, but eights do. Eights are typically very free to express exactly what they think, exactly how strongly they think it, even sometimes stronger than how they really think it. Um, and, and that's actually one of their gifts, I would say. So it's really funny because this week I had a lot of folks in um, the true, these true false statements saying that fours and eights can't get along. And I actually find that to not be true. Um, I find that sometimes eights and fours can get along really well because they both value intensity and passion so much. Though sometimes the four and eight combination can be really hard because fours can be a little bit too sensitive um, and eights can be a little bit too boundaried. Um, and so that can be a really tough combination sometimes, but they can get along really well. So I would say that's true that eights are not so intense and, and scary. I think that, um, they're just fully authentically themselves in the moment in their expression of, of that. And finally type nine, sorry, nines you're at the end. Um, Nines aren't pushovers at all. In fact, they're very strong, stubborn, and opinionated. And I say this is true. I do not think that nines are pushovers. Um, I've heard it said by many Enneagram folks that nines are the most stubborn type. And I tend to agree with them. I have lived with a number of nines. I have friends who are nines. I think it's very true. Um, So 
the reason that people think that nines are pushovers is because they tend to be agreeable. So being agreeable and being in agreement are different. So being agreeable means I'm going to walk in the room and smile and nod and and make you feel heard and, and convey that I understand you. Being in agreement means I'm agreeing with what you're saying. So a lot of the time, nines are agreeable, but they're not actually agreeing with you. They're not in agreement with the course of action or what you're saying. Um, and in fact, they might even smile and nod in the moment and then later it it's just like it bounced right off. They, they don't really take it into consideration. Um, and so I think that this is very much a self-protection mechanism for nines. I think that that desire to keep the peace means that they don't convey their true feelings and true thoughts in the moment, but they'll kind of be like, okay. And, you know, later they go ahead with what they were going to do all along or what they were not going to do all along. Um, but they're not really swayed that easily. Um, a lot of nines. So some nines I would say merge a lot harder or, um, specifically sexual nines you'll see this with, uh, so the sexual subtype of type nine. Um, you'll see that, that merging tendency, but so some nines do just kind of go along to get along, but a lot of nines actually, you know, if you push them, then you'll find exactly where (laughs) they're, they're not willing to move. Um, because that is one big thing for nines is they really hate to be pushed around and they won't always say that. Um, but that's an important thing for them. So don't push a nine around. <laughs> it's funny. I had a number of um, months ago, I had somebody ask me how to motivate a nine. And the response I expected was the response I got, which was to say that um, nines were like, um, if you, if I can sense that you're trying to quote unquote motivate me, I am not going to be happy and I'm going to push back. <laughs> and I I laughed at that because I think it's really true. Like I think a lot of the time nines aren't very free to say that, but um, I think that's something I've observed a lot. And honestly, that's connected again to the the virtue of type nine, which is the thing that their that growth and awareness can lead them toward, which is right action of knowing their values, knowing where they stand on something, and being okay when it causes discord if it's something that is truly aligned with their convictions. Um. And so when you find that for nines, it's really powerful because so often they don't speak out, but when they find something that they're so, so passionate about, they will. Okay. That's all nine types. Um, I thought this episode was pretty fun. Uh, it was fun for me to make. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts and perspective on it. So let me know what you think. You can shoot me an email at hello at nine types.co and send me a question. What questions do you want to hear answered? Um, or true false statements do you want to hear answered? And then, um, DM me over on Instagram at nine types co. And I am really looking forward to what we have coming up soon. So, the next few episodes will be with a parenting coach named Rebecca of Avita Consulting. And we met through um, our coaching certification program. But Rebecca has just done some really awesome things with um, parenting and the Enneagram. And she has a lot of experience uh, with parenting and um, parenting mediation, which is really cool and fascinating and a job that I think deserves probably a lot more praise than it gets. But um 
yeah, I'm really excited about those episodes coming out and we're going to be answering all of your parenting questions or really I'll be asking them. Rebecca will be answering because she is a parent and is a parenting coach. And so I'm excited to share those episodes with you. And if you like the podcast, I would love it if you would give a quick rating and review. Um, If you are a five-star review lover of the podcast, that would be fantastic. Um, And yeah, I am really hoping that you have a great week. I hope you found today's podcast helpful. Hope you learned something new about the Enneagram. And I'm looking forward to being back here with you in a couple weeks. Have a good one.